But there will be no gloom for her. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. God, you have done a great thing. We are here to worship you for that. As we open up your word, I pray that you would open up our eyes. We would see what you've done. We would see who Christ is today. And we would praise him through it, we ask in your holy name. Amen. Amen. It has been um, quite a year, hasn't it? This is my first Christmas with you, and um, I suppose it's a strange one at that, but I'm glad to be here. Uh, I've, I've been saving these pictures. You know, in, in South Africa, in dark times, we make light of those times with humor, don't we? Um, and so I thought Christmas time would be a good time for these. These are, if, if 2020 was a dot, 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 photographs. This is, if 2020 was a cup of coffee. See the next one? Let's have... Yeah, 2020 was a bag of chips. Can you read that? (laughs) Orange juice and toothpaste. If 2020 was a hula hoop. The next one. If 2020 was a slide. If 2020 was a swing. And, you know, if, if 2020 had a significant astronomical event, like in this last week, what did they call it, the conjunction of, of Saturn and, and Jupiter? They dubbed it the Bethlehem Star of 2020. <laughs> At least that's if you're a Durbanite, right? <laughs> Usually after a difficult year, Christmas swoops in, and it comes with a fresh start a promise of a new year and a fresh start. This year, Christmas has come with a, another wave and variant strains. Um, some of our number are watching at home in isolation. Some of you have canceled big lunches. Um, Christmas shopping is mixed with masks and sanitizer and agoraphobia as well. And there's no evidence that 2021 is going to be any easier, is there? 
I was speaking to a member last week and they said they felt convicted because they usually get to this time of year, sort of finished with the year, looking forward to a new year. And he said, actually, we don't know that it's going to be any easier next year. The only thing we can trust in right now is God. And, and that was true. At times we are stripped of other saviors. But honestly, this puts us in the best place for Christmas. Whenever you look in the scripture at the, the message of Christmas, it always begins here. It always begins in darkness and lack of hope. And it's from that place of darkness that Christmas shines. John 1 verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So as we frown tentatively into 2021, we come today to, to hope again and to put our hope in Jesus Christ. He is now and always has been, and He will be in 2021, a good and a gracious King. We come to Isaiah one more time this year, and we see again this, this pattern of darkness giving way to light and hopelessness giving way to hope, to impossible victory. We're saying now, He who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, conquered death's sting. He's shattered the darkness and He's lifted our shame. Holy is His name. Before we jump into this text, just a, a word or two about the, the context here in, in Isaiah chapter 9. We've been hopping around all over the place and it can be difficult to keep track of what is happening broadly in the, the book. During the reign of Uzziah, there had been prosperity in the land of Judah, but the storm clouds were beginning to um, approach and hover during Ahaz's reign. Assyria is this rising world power. They're a hungry devourer of nations. And Israel and Judah are standing right in her path. Now Israel has formed an alliance with Syria, not Assyria. They formed an alliance with their neighbors to the north, Syria, thinking that maybe they can battle against Assyria in that way. And they've called Judah to that alliance, but Ahaz has refused that alliance. And so um, Israel, Syria have turned um, against Judah as well, thinking maybe we can depose Ahaz, put a, a puppet king in, and we'd be stronger against Assyria. And Ahaz is in a, a difficult spot. So not only does he have Assyria approaching, but he's got Syria and Israel to the north as well. And God has made him a promise, though. He, says, he said to Ahaz, trust no one else. Trust in me, and I will defend you. I will fight for you. Ahaz fails, refuses to trust Yahweh, and he puts his hope in human strength and in his own wisdom, and he actually makes an alliance or calls out to Assyria, the enemy of God's people. Assyria will be the, the nation to conquer Israel, to conquer Syria as well. And then they will turn their back on Judah. It's a dark day spiritually for Israel, a dark day for Judah. And gloom is about to cover the land. This is how Isaiah 8 ends in 8.22. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And yet stunningly, remember there's no chapter headings in the original book, right? 
Stunningly, right after those words in chapter 9, Isaiah breaks forth with a new hope. He even sings about it in this chapter. Chapter 9 brings this abrupt change of mood. And he's speaking here to a remnant. To a remnant, there's this promise that darkness will not be your final state. It will give way to light. Sorrow will give way to joy. Oppression to liberation. A rescuing king will come. And the promise comes to them and to us all with this call, trust me alone. Trust in me to be your savior. Verse one, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. In verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. That Zebulun and Naphtali, they were the the northern tribes of Israel, so they were right there at the top at the border where trouble always started. And when Assyria began their conquest of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali were the first to fall. So about a decade before the rest of the nation fell, they fell to the Assyrians in 733. This was where God's hand struck first in judgment against Israel says he brought them into contempt. It was a judgment that they deserved. After centuries of darkness and rebellion and idolatry in the land, it was a judgment that could have been the end. But God doesn't hold them, he says, in contempt forever. And what's amazing in this passage is this promise that where His judgment first came at the location where his hand first struck. There, his mercy would be revealed. Don't you find that amazing? Over 700 years later, this prophecy was fulfilled in the most incredible way. The king of glory came and he walked the earth. And he walked into a land that had known so much darkness. Matthew points to Jesus in his gospel In fulfillment of this prophecy in chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, On them a light has dawned. Through the incarnation of God's Son, light enters the world. And his ministry began in Galilee of the Gentiles. Ray Ortland comments on this. He says, God came to his people first where they had suffered the most. And from that place he launched salvation for the world. The Galileans knew slavery and despair, but God turned invasion into mission. By making the people of Galilee the first ones to see the light of Jesus. This is how God ushered in the new era of triumphant grace. We made no contribution to it. The ones walking in darkness suddenly found themselves blinking under a new light they had never seen before. They deserved what had happened to them. But God was not satisfied with that. 
his zeal brought a savior. It's interesting, nowhere else in the Old Testament is it called this Galilee of the Gentiles. But this is Isaiah's hint to the world and to us. He's not just a savior for the, the, the Jews, he's a savior for the whole world. And so he says in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. God gives this word to a remnant and to Isaiah. There is gloom and there is sorrow right now. But joy and light will have the final say. It is a joy as I describes as at the, the, the harvest, at the final payday. There's a joy that comes with the, the victory horn when it is blown. This is the promise always to the children of God, no matter what we face in our lives. It's the cry of the Reformation, post-tenebrous looks, after darkness, light, after mourning, dancing, joy will repay every sorrow and glory, every loss. Alec Martin, in his commentary gives this challenge. As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. Are they to look at the darkness? the hopelessness, the dreams shattered and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall His past mercies, to remember His present promises, and to make great affirmations of faith? The darkness is true. The darkness is true today. But it is not the whole truth. And certainly not the fundamental truth. We have seen the fulfillment of what these people just longed for. At the cross, the place where the ultimate location where judgment met mercy. We have seen what God has done for us. How much more should we not cling to the, the salvation and the hope that we have in Christ? Verses 4 and 7 go on to anchor current joy and peace with an explanation of the future, that their future is not going to be secured by the strength of their own hands, but a liberator will come and he will fight for them and he has fought for us. Three times we see the word for used in this passage. In verses 4, 5, and 6, we have the explanation of why we should be joyful, why today we should have peace. In verse 4, for the yoke the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Isaiah, I don't know if you've picked it up, is speaking in the present tense, even in the past tense. He's speaking of something that's future, something still to come as if it's already happened. That's his certainty. He prophesies that every enemy that we have, every enemy of the people of God will be defeated, but not by us, not by them. We are not the, the you in verse 4. He does the breaking of yokes, the breaking of staffs. We enjoy a victory that we did not win. And, and he wants to make this clear. When he talks about the day of Midian here in verse 4, what's that a reference to? It's a reference to Judges 6 to 8 and to Gideon. 
The Midianites are encamped against the people of God. They are oppressing the people of God, and God calls the weak and the cowardly Gideon to be the instrument of liberation and freedom. And Gideon summons this army. 32,000 soldiers come ready to fight. And God intentionally whittles that number down to 300, saying if if victory comes, it's not going to be at your hand. And you will not boast. They don't win the battle with sword or with shield. They win it with shouting, with breaking of pots and with shining of torches in their enemies' eyes. There was not one in that 300 who could say, look at the victory that our hands have wrought. And Isaiah looks forward to a liberator greater than Gideon. In verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the same language we've seen elsewhere in Isaiah in chapter 2 verse 4. It says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What he's talking about here in verse 5 is not just the victory that this Messiah will have. He's talking as well about how he puts an end to all conflict. It's an astonishing victory that he has. In Isaiah 2, it's the picture of the weapons of war being broken down and made into gardening tools. This picture of a return to the Edenic peace. Here, the boots and the garments for war are used as fuel for the hearth fire. I love how Ray Ortland puts it. Every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. That's the picture here in this passage. Piper points out, not only are God's enemies and the people of God's enemies defeated, but they are super defeated to the point where they actually become useful to God. What room is there in the face of this promise and what He will do and has done to our enemies? What room is there for fear and for hopelessness today? There's an example of what's going on in this verse in Romans chapter 8. It's all over that chapter. For those who love Him, the promise is that all things will work together for good to ransom sinners. He says, if God is for us, who can stand against? Who shall bring charge? God is the one who justifies. Who can condemn when Christ has died and risen again and even now is interceding as we speak? Can our enemies separate us from His love? No. Verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That's what God does with our enemies. He turns the situation around and we become more than conquerors. The first five verses of Isaiah chapter 9 reveal and show this decided reversal of the situation in chapter 8. This gloom turns into glory, darkness into light, anguish into joy, burden into liberation, and even oppression into a grand reversal where the oppressors are used in service of God's people. And now in verse 6, the famous verse, the explanation of how this light will appear. 
Isaiah is setting the stage for the grandest event in all of history. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Ray Ortland comments, God's answer to everything that has terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by becoming or coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. And he was no ordinary child. He is the only one able to rescue In order to defeat our enemies, Satan and sin and death, what did we need? We needed, firstly, a human. We needed a human being, somebody who could represent us before a holy God, who could live the life we could never live, and who could offer that life as a sacrifice for us. But we needed a divine hero, one able to mediate between God and man. And carry our interests right before the throne of God. Ravi Zacharias pointed out, The Son is not born. The Son eternally existed and is given. The child is born and entered our time. Fully God and fully man. Our only hope is the most unthinkable gift that heaven could ever give. And the answer to our sin, God took on flesh and he made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory glorious of the only son from the father and it may be cheesy to say we say this every time at christmas but it's true we'll never get a greater gift than what heaven has already given Probably my favorite song that we sing at this church has this verse, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, my freedom. Is that true of you? My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine. I can say, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The liberation that we receive from oppressive rulers is not to to self-government. That comes with its own tyranny. But it's to the freedom of this king's good and responsible reign. Our yoke is broken only because he is strong enough to bear the weight of peacemaking upon his shoulders. And so everything stands upon the shoulders of this king and the kind of ruler that he will be. And so that's what Isaiah turns his attention to now. How is he to rule? What is his character? What is Jesus like? Have you ever heard of an aptronym? An aptronym. It's when somebody's name accidentally or coincidentally lines up with what they've accomplished in life or, or what their vocation is. Um, so it's like the, the athlete, Usain Bolt, right? 
as in bolt of lightning, or the poet William Wordsworth, the former president of St. John's College, Oxford, Michael Scala, or the American race car driver. I looked all of these up. They're, they're real. Scott Speed. And this is my favorite, the, the Victorian age pioneer of flushing toilets, Thomas Crapper. Um, I put that in there and I thought I'll come back to that. I'm not sure if I, I should share it. And then it just jumped up on me on, on the page. <laughs> For all of these people, this is retrospective coincidence. Their name accidentally describing what they accomplished or what they did. Christ's birth announcement is different. Isaiah is looking forward and prophesying who he will be, who he will be for us. And his name, his character, when you see the word name, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He is our Wonderful Counselor. Isaiah has captured well the human condition. This darkness described, the, the, the language of yoke and of burden. Humanity is walking in darkness. It's a reality of our world. We're groping around, trying to grab onto something to, to provide anchor, trying to find direction. And our response, however, to darkness is to just fill our lives with coping mechanisms and th these philosophies that don't help. They just comfort us in our blindness. Even worse, we cling to the darkness. John 3.19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We don't need false comforts that keep us in darkness and in blindness. We need a guide, somebody to take us into the light. Jesus is wonderful counselor. The one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that is on offer for you today. We come to Him. He is the King who rules with perfect wisdom. He has perfect wisdom in Himself. He has never been confused. He has never been lost or uncertain or worried. He has never needed advice. Isaiah 40, verse 12 to 14, Isaiah says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And the answer is no one. No one has ever given to him as if he needed. He fulfills this work of being wonderful counselor to us because he is God incarnate. In our darkness, we needed a guide and he, he came down onto the earth. He showed us the way. Hebrews 1 verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of our nature. He came and He spoke God to us. So reject your darkness survival kit. 
your human reasoning, reject your your darkness-loving justifications and follow Him, follow the wonderful Counselor. He is mighty God. When this birth announcement was made in 7 verse 14, remember? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and His name shall be Emmanuel. What does that mean? It means God with us. Isaiah wasn't just using metaphor here. This was not just a figure of speech for God's provision. Isaiah means for us to take that literally. He is actually mighty God in our midst. There is no more mighty a response to the enemies that we had than, than a God who would take on flesh and who, like a lamb, went silently to the slaughter. Is there a stronger, a mightier response than a Christ who submitted voluntarily to the cross of Calvary? There is no greater might than His meekness. There was no other means of defeating sin, of satisfying the wrath of God. And in His lonely act on a cursed tree, He did what 10 million angels could never do. Though armed with all the weapons, of heaven's armories. And Christ who stayed upon that tree until the work was finished instead of calling those angels to his side is mightier. He is a mightier king than any this world has ever known and will know. Let us hide behind him and find safety in him. He is everlasting father. Do you find that surprising? Isaiah is not confused about the Trinity here. The Son is not the Father and the Father is not the Son. But this statement is is a statement on His perfect kingly role. The King's reign is seen in its most positive sense when He provides for His people the love and security that a father would provide for His children. Jesus provides to us the security of God's love. In 53 verse 10, of Isaiah, Isaiah says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He shall see his offspring. So Piper comments, When Jesus dies for sinners and produces a family, in a sense, even though God the Father is uniquely the Father of all things, Jesus becomes a kind of Father to those he brings into being as new forgiven creatures of God. So those who follow the wonderful counselor and hide behind the mighty God, they find the perfect security and love of the everlasting Father. At the end of a a difficult year, looking into probably another difficult year, Jesus says to us, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He is the Prince of Peace, the King of Peace. He brings us peace with God. Isaiah 53, 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. Do you believe that? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His wounds we are healed. He leads us into a kingdom of forever peace where there will be no more pain or coronavirus, no more tears or sorrows. And even today, 
John 14 promises that He leaves us His very peace for right now that we need not be troubled or afraid or defeated. Let us embrace His dominion. Let us embrace His Lordship. Because finally, in verse 7, it says, Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. His reign expanding and reaching into every corner of the globe until every inch of the universe is pervaded by the knowledge of the Lord. He says, as the water covers the seas. We submit to his ruling today because we will enjoy his peace forever. A peace that is increasing and intensifying on and on into eternity. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This king is building a kingdom. He sustains it with his mighty hands. It is not propped up by us. And yet, what grace that we are brought into a building work. Into a side-by-side work with our Jesus. This kingdom, Hebrews 12, 28, is a kingdom we receive that cannot be shaken, is the promise. We are called to come to it with reverence. And with awe and with this heart that says, I've given over rulership to you. I've given myself to you. Because our God is a consuming fire, the author of Hebrews says. Has he consumed your life? Your heart? Look at the last line in verse 7. The zeal. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this to a remnant looking about them and seeing darkness as I gives this assurance the promise that we have in this passage is bound to the zeal of the Lord literally as Marcia points out that jealousy which is a component of all true love and preeminently the Lord's love there is infinite zeal behind the promise to enthrone Christ on the throne of glory. There is infinite zeal behind the promise to gather and create a people loved by the Lord with a jealous love, a people for His glory, a people who will experience forever perfect peace and infinite love. And when we are there one day in His presence and we look about us, at a changed world, at a changed people, we will say that the zeal of the Lord has done this. There will be no doubt in any of our hearts that the victory was wrought by Him, that He has done a good thing, and we will marvel forever at His grace. And so today is a day to marvel as well. We marvel together at the King of kings and the Lord of lords and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we are astonished at the victory that you have won. We are astonished at what you have done. We would never come up with the plan 
incarnation. We could never win the victory for ourselves, and so you came down. You defeated our enemies. We no longer fear death this year or next or any year. We know that sin will not conquer or have reign in our lives because we are more than conquerors in you. And so we put again our hope in you. Jesus, we want to thank you for this year. We want to thank you for what's happened this year. Because through it all, you have been a good king. You've been good to Hillcrest Baptist Church. You've been good to us in sufferings, to those who have lost their jobs. You've been a comfort, and you've been gracious. You are always kind. And so we turn our frowns into smiles as we look into the new year, and we say there is nothing that the world, there's nothing that the enemy can throw at us that we are not protected by your mighty hand. And so we come before you and we adore you now. Amen.